How does a scholar build an academic identity? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Jorge Peña in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Jorge Peña, who's professor in the Department of Communication at the University of California, Davis. Jorge did his undergraduate degree in social and organizational psychology at Universidad de Santiago de Chile. Then his Master of Science and his PhD, both in communication, both at Cornell University, uh, where he was advised by the extraordinary Jeff Hancock. Jorge is an expert in the areas of computer-mediated communication, cognition, affect, and behavior in video games and virtual environment, in social psychology, delving on issues such as priming, impression formation, and social comparisons, and in quantitative research methods, in particular in experiments and automated linguistic analysis. He is the author of 57 publications in some of the leading journals of the field. He's been at the University of California at Davis for a number of years, most exactly arriving in 2013, 10 years there. Before then, he was an assistant professor at the Department of Communication Studies at UT Austin. Jorge, welcome to El Café Latinx. Muchas gracias, Pablo Facundo. Thanks for having me here today. It is a pleasure for us. So Jorge, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yeah, uh, I think it was uh, a combination of factors that all came together at different points in my life. I think that uh, I was always uh, interested as a child on uh, reading the environment and understanding where people came with their attitudes, like when my parents, my uncles would make political statements or statements about life and how you should live your life. I was very interested in where that knowledge came from and how they arrived to that particular conclusion and what were the dynamics behind the certainty that I saw in some of their uh, beliefs, uh, some certainties that I didn't necessarily uh, share. And uh, my, in my observation, I was uh, seeing that they read particular newspapers or interacted with particular media, what specific movies were drawn to specific types of music. And that got me more interested in the effects of media in uh, their beliefs and in society in general. 
This is at a time where uh, Chile was uh, opening up uh, uh, to the world after the Pinochet uh, dictatorship. So I was born in 77 and Pinochet uh, was with us as president until the early 90s and then then even for some more time. So it felt to me a time of uh, crucible in terms of how Chile was opening up to the world and artists would visit uh, and there would be like music shows and there would be new exciting technologies. And I felt that I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, uh, part of that is also the fact that uh, my family had access to uh, technologies, computers, video games, and other uh, artifacts that might not been available to everybody. Uh, my parents had a VHS and video game rental store that they run for about five years in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. So that made me more aware of uh, American society, American media, learning English, and making this connection in terms of, okay, this is the media that is feeding into people's uh, psyche and making them think and desire objects and think about the world in particular ways. And, and also drew me closer to interactive technologies because I had access to them and Kids would come from the neighborhood, we would exchange video games and play. This is a little bit like being in ET or the Goonies. So you're like riding your bicycle around Santiago with your friends and having these common experiences that revolve around media, uh, going to the arcades and uh, inviting your friends over. And I think that that may be interested in this combination between the psychological aspects that I've also been interested uh, in but not only in psychology as a field, but uh, communication and thinking about how people exchange messages with each other and how media messages uh, influence uh, interpersonal communication as well. So I found myself in that particular intersection. Um, I was uh, very much, uh, and still am a music nerd, uh, played uh, bass and sing and do music production and things like that. Um, and I started, as a, a freshman in psychology, and I was very much like the guy sitting in the back in disbelief at everything that was being said to me. I was very skeptical uh, about you know, what I was uh, first learning. And then I met a professor, uh, Emilio Moyano, who became my mentor. He's a well-renowned social psychologist in Chile that worked in the area of persuasion. And he was particularly interested in road safety. So I collaborated with him because I came from a British school that allowed me to read text in English. So I was doing translation and translating American papers. He studied in Lubain, so his French is excellent, but he needed someone to translate the American literature to the research that he was doing. And then little by little, I started uh, getting more uh, immersed in research and the idea of like, oh, this is, I could earn a living out of this. This is so interesting and you can travel and make a mark in individuals or society by studying this and sign me up. This is, this is uh, I thought, uh, felt, uh, as a wonderful career in which you can proceed and, and pursue certain ideas. But since it's a quantitative approach, then if you have the data, then you can prove or say something. And if you don't have it, then you maybe don't know, have evidence for what you say. So that straight me more into quantitative research and experiments and the analysis of what people say 
uh, rather than becoming a humanist because I was also very much interested in art and music. And I'm like, well, I will always be debating people in that area that I need to reread Lacan or reread Freud because I didn't get it. But if I go into the social sciences, I either have a good study or not, and I have the data or not. So this uh, starkness in, in the thought and the precision of, of the social scientific thinking uh, made me more interested in continuing uh, along the path uh, set by Emilio. Great story. So from the video, you know, story in Santiago to the small centrally isolated Ithaca in upstate New York, <laughs> how was that transition? I mean, why Cornell? How was the process of applying? Um, um, and why Cornell? I, I applied to several schools. Uh, I remember applying to London School of Economics. I remember applying to UPenn. I, uh, Cornell was my top choice. Uh, and I was so happy when I was uh, uh, accepted uh, into the program because it was my top choice. And the reason why it was my top choice was because at the time the program had a specialization called the Social Psychology of Communication. So I was like, well, I'm making the transition from so social psychology to a new field. And at the time I was reading in Chile, Umberto Eco, which I still read, and, you know, uh, very interested in not only his uh, literary uh, work, but also his theory of semiotics. So I was like, if I study communication, do I need to transition to become more of a philosopher, critical scholar, or someone like Umberto Eco, which was what I thought was one area of communication, which indeed it is in certain camps, or is there a program that allows me to use the skills that I already have and perfect them and put them in a new direction, in a new context without having to completely reformat myself as a, a, as a scholar. And so the Cornell program was very interesting to me uh, at the time because of the social psychology of communication uh, uh, concentration. Uh, at the time in Chile, we were uh, back in the government of Ricardo Lagos. So we were uh, two gov democratic governments in after Pinochet. This might be the third one, if I remember correctly. And there was uh, uh, Tironi and uh, some other scholar that I, I'm uh, forgetting the name that were students that had come well, from sociology, one of them, uh, uh, Halpern was the last name that had studied at UPenn, I believe. And they had come back as uh, campaign managers or communication scholars that were interested in persuasion and elections in Chile. So I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm gonna go study the social psychology of communication. I'm gonna become a spin doctor and you know, help people with uh, uh, campaigns, political campaigns and tailor messages and try to persuade them that this is the best option or the best candidate. And I arrived to the United States, I go to the Ithaca Music Festival, I'm sitting on the grass and I'm like, why would I want to do that? Like, I'm gonna sell myself to be a political spin doctor going back in Chile for the money. Like I felt that, that, that project which make a lot of sense from a middle-class Chilean standpoint and using education as a way of like earning money, I suppose, was compromising some of my values and, and imagination, creativity, call it what you will. I felt that it would be pigeon boxing myself in a way that was more what was expected of me than what I should do out of my own interest. 
Then at Cornell, I find that they had hired two new scholars, uh, Jeff Hancock and Joe Walther. And they were talking about communication in you know chat rooms and not social media necessarily, but the internet in general. And at the time, I had arrived to Cornell with uh, got myself a computer and I had a copy of a video game that I had not been able to play in Chile because I didn't have a good enough computer with an internet connection. And in my first week, while I was still like soul searching, I connected to that game and I discovered a microcosm of, of people in a game that they were essentially in hierarchies based on who's best at the game, who's less good at the game. They would use linguistic conventions like abbreviations or lingo to communicate in ways that are more precise, but not as long. People were maintaining interpersonal distances. And I'm like, wow, computer media communication, this is a microcosm of society that is happening in some uh, virtual environment in this virtual costume party. And therefore, I quickly switched from this idea of becoming a spin doctor in political communication and go back to Chile to becoming a computer media communication scholar and looking at how people organize themselves, how people uh, are affected or how people use uh, uh, interactive technologies in particular. Uh, as I was taking courses in communication theory, uh, most of the literature that I was reading was about the general uh, aggression model and as an explanation for how video games were in the mind of researchers connected to uh, the Columbine massacre and other things that were happening, this is in 2002. So much of the view about video games is they're bad for you, it's a waste of time, it's all dystopian, it's uh, gonna make people more aggressive. But that contrasted with me growing up in Chile where kids were playing around video games and socializing and what I was seeing online. So I figured out that there was a path to forge there if I would concentrate on the effects, the effects of that other scholars were not focusing on. And how was the experience of being a middle-class Chilean student from Santiago um, and being to, to you know, uh, shifting from there to being a doctoral student at a place like Cornell, one of the best institutions in the US, but also in a very small town um, where essentially the universities eat, almost, not entirely, but Yeah, it, it was a, a shocker. Uh, I think that, uh, well, we, we can start on the superficial stuff like the weather and changing my, my uh, the language that I was speaking. I learned English in Chile and I was proficient. I had taken, TOEFL, GRE in English. I had taken the Cambridge examination, went to a, a very good British high school. But once you're there, I'm like, I could not be funny. I could not understand anything that was being said because I was mentally translating everything that was happening around me. So I felt very slow on my reactions to what's happening around me and just uh, dumb in general and unfunny. So it's like this change of like being able to express yourself in, uh, in Espanol in your native language and then having to this slow transition of translating things and making things slow, writing in English, which my writing was obviously terrible to this situation of like making the transition for English to become my first uh, speaking language and, and the, the, the thing that I'm using for, for writing as well. Uh, the, the climate too uh, made a difference because Ithaca uh, sees a lot of snow, so we spent a lot of time indoors in Kennedy Hall at the time where the Department of Communication was, was then based. So a lot of time uh, in, uh, reading, a lot of time doing research. And at the same time, 
I wanted that. I really wanted it. When I was in Chile, I felt that I could do more with my career. I felt understimulated that, you know, in the right environment, I would flourish. And if I would be pushed really hard to my maximum capacity, I'll be able to progress. Again, the middle class Chilean thinking of the time was translating to how I was looking at my career. And then I realized that uh, while that while that was true, uh, I was getting everything that I was hoping for. So yeah, I was sleeping very little. I was one of the, there must have been more Latinos, of course there were, but to me, I was, uh, uh, there were two other Chileans in the Department of Communication at Cornell at the time, um, Claudia Barriga and Marisa Schaefer. And they were also interested in how Chile was changing based on new communication technologies, television, etc. So I felt I was in the right company because you, you didn't see many Chileans at Cornell, but two of them, we were three in the same department and we were both studying communication and this connection to media. So I felt this is the zeitgeist in which the Chilean scholars are going abroad and, and being interested in, in communication as a field. Uh, so it, it, it felt like the right place to be, the right program to be. At the same time, I was one of the few Latinos, maybe, in my mind, at least in town. I had a very good Uruguayan friend who's still one of my best friends, now lives in the Bay Area, another Antonio, uh, and my friend Pedro from Brazil, who is now in Japan. And we would hang out with each other because there, we didn't see like that many Latinos uh, around us. And I think that my recollection is that people would read me from like, oh, you're Latino, you're Chilean, you must be a lot of fun, you must be good at soccer. And I don't know how much fun I really am, but I certainly terrible at soccer. So I, I felt like a little bit boxed, uh, and there was expectations about me. And, and I wanted to be a good scholar. I wanted to be hardcore. And I wanted to be like Jeff. And I wanted to be like Joe. So at that time, I became like very uh, immersed in communication research and trying to prove to myself and prove to others that I was worth a seat at the table being at Cornell as a grad student that would be able to say something about the to the scientific community within my own field. So I felt like a little bit of like trying to model myself to disconfirm, confirm it at certain times, like yeah, maybe I'm fun, but at the same time I'm hardcore and these are the things that I want to do and becoming very uh, stodgy, perhaps even in my thinking, like adopting some of the biases and some of the beliefs of your advisors and take them to the max. And then later in my career realizing that, well, that, that was Jeff, that was Joe, that's not really me. But it was something that I, I probably took for as a way of surviving and finding my own identity uh, at Cornell. Absolutely. And so you are now farther ahead in your doctoral program. You are considering options in terms of career paths once you finish. Um, did you know from the get-go that you wanted to stay in academia? Did you find that there? Um, did you consider going back to Chile? Um, did you want to stay in the U.S.? How was that moment, you know, fourth year, fifth year of PhD? Yeah, that, that's such an interesting question. I never wanted to go back to Chile. Never. Um, 
when I was signing up the paperwork for, uh, I, I took what was called a Corfo loan, uh, which was a state-owned loan to help me with my studies. But in reality, the state was like, he put in its name behind the loan. It was really the banks that owed the loan. And the bank officer that was helping me pay my, give me money that I would use for paying part of my tuition was like, people like you that take this loan can never repay it. You know that, right? You're going to be poor throughout your life because you're going to take this big loan and you won't be able to repay it. And, and he was just doing the math and he was right. Like that, there was scandal later on about that particular uh, government issued the loan for studying abroad. And I essentially, for a student at that time, you would pay $3 for every dollar that you borrowed. So it was a predatory loan as they come. So I knew that I couldn't go back to Chile and make a career because my experience with my esteemed psychology professors uh, was that they would work at Universidad de Chile, Universidad Católica, and then go to Universidad Central. So they're constantly in the Santiago subway, going from one school to the other, doing the, the work as, uh, as teachers. And, and research at the time was something that you would do at more R1 institutions in Chile, but still teaching was what allowed Chilean professors, the way I saw them at, at the time, earn, earn their keep. So having two offices, two jobs, and at least two R1 universities. And I'm like, I was like, if I can avoid that, that would be great because I live in one area of Santiago, La Reina, and would go to Universidad Santiago, which is almost the opposite sides of the city. So I'm like, if I do this for a living, I'm going to ruin my health and I'm going to be unhappy and there's so much pollution. And I just felt that it was... Uh, not only I wouldn't be able to repay that loan, but also that I would be unhappy. And I was seeing that with colleagues that were coming back to Chile, where you were studying at elite universities in the United States and Europe, then to be confronted back with the educational system in Chile that may or may not take you back in. Then maybe they would take you if there was a, 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 an opening, of course, and, and, and having a, 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 the good reputation of a university behind your title would also help you. But it felt like uh, a bad economic proposition, uh, uh, just the quality of life, which is something that I, I personally do value a lot, would not be, not be met uh, going back uh, to Chile. Uh, so I figured that my best career path was to, to stay in academia in the United States, which to me was a pleasure and still is because I, I enjoy doing research and I enjoy teaching and I enjoy the idea of being a communication scholar and you know trying to get people interested in the area of your work. I usually tell my grad students, if you're not excited about it, then nobody else will. So <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm, I, I still have that drive and still have that motivation that, uh, that I had as a grad student. But I, I felt that the, the grounds for being able to accomplish those goals was to stay in the United States and never look back. And I visited Chile uh, a few times uh, during my stay. I was in a long distance relationship at the time as a grad student. So I would go back every year. And my then girlfriend, a very good friend of mine, I mean, even up to this day, she would come to Ithaca. So I was going back to Chile back and forth. I did the same when I was at UT Austin, that whenever there was a break, like the uh, winter break, there would be like a month off and I would go back to Chile. But then my my parents also moved to the United States, they live in Florida. My grandmother uh, is now deceased. So little by little, the allure of going back to Chile for my family it was less so because 
my nuclear family was here in the United States, my career was here in the United States, and my family was, you know, essentially people were uh, dying of old age, so it was better to stay. Uh, that being said, now I'm establishing research uh, collaborations with colleagues at Universidad de Talca, and I'm very excited about the work that we want to do with uh, digitizing cultural artifacts and presenting them to individuals in a virtual museum format that can run in VR or in 2D screens or on mobile phones and look at those particular persuasive uh, effects. Uh, so I look forward going back to Chile and not, not as a tourist, but, but more into research collaboration. But I think I haven't established research collaborations with Chile because I was so centered in doing my research career here and my work didn't quite intersect with anything that was being done, doing in Chilean society. Like I'm not working about, not, not looking at Chilean politicians or the press in Chile or anything like that. So my work didn't have a direct connection at that time, but I feel that uh, right now the, I, I want that connection and scholars in Chile Look at, oh, virtual reality, avatars, virtual environments. And like, Jorge Peña, isn't that guy from Chile? Did I know him from, well, wasn't he a friend of mine when we were in psychology? So, so I'm getting being pulled back in uh, oh, oh, after some time. I see. So after quite some time. Now, <laughs> yeah. did you consider going to industry or you were set on becoming an academic? Well, that's a great question. The answer is, go ahead. No, no, with your skill set, you could have gone quite easily to industry. Yeah, the, the Cornell program had a big connection to, uh, and still does, to uh, information science. Uh, so, you know, the Jeff and uh, Jeff Hancock, Jerry Gate, Walter, everybody like had is going on in information science and many of the students in information science were more uh, you know go, going towards industry I think that I didn't consider it as much uh, I think that the reason for that was that my role models were more academic in nature my dad was an engineer for the Chilean mining copper company Codelco which is like Pemex it's like the big you know state-owned copper uh, uh, company uh, in Chile but he also taught at Universidad de La Serena in uh, mechanical engineering. And, and my grandfather, he uh, was uh, in the railroad uh, uh, guild. So he worked with railroads, but he also wrote. He was like a poet. And I found some of his uh, writings. And, and I felt that that always connected me more to arts and science than industry, even though my dad, you know, was then, then reconverted and, and went as a mechanical engineer for Codelco. Uh, I think that my role model of uh, Emilio Moyano, the professor that sponsored me and worked as my mentor, and we did work on attitude change and road safety and road uh, uh, ads, like road safety ads uh, to be run in Chilean television, got me more interested in the idea of uh, pursuing that path that I uh, felt that my dad was going into, but then went into industry. And then, and then uh, Emilio kind of cemented that, that idea of, I, I want to be a professor. Um, I think that part of that is the, I'm gonna say Chilean middle-class thinking at the time where I don't know if it's the case, probably still is that people are like, well, yo soy abogado, yo soy doctor, yo soy profesor. Like people buy into this go, uh, very government-like self-presentation roles in which you're, front stage and even backstage is being that uh, person. And, and I felt that 
there was a good fit, <laughs> taking again from government, between my personal identity and that that public identity that I wanted to take. So I was like very certain that that I could fit into that identity, that that's the identity that I wanted. And I also had personal concerns about industry in terms of, uh, yeah, I'm going to earn more, but I'm not going to necessarily have ownership about the projects that I want to carry out, uh, that uh, liberty, that academic, that that ideal, whether it's real or not, of academic liberty in terms of pursuing intellectual interests that are your interests that are not determined by what the dean wants you to study or your colleagues want you to study, uh, was uh, very much and still is uh, appealing uh, to me. Um, so therefore, I felt that I would have more of that intellectual liberty uh, as an academic than as an industry person. How was the academic job market the first time around? Yeah, the first time around was uh, was amazing, <laughs> but uh, but but it was odd too. Um, so I, I mentioned that I was uh, at Cornell and like, oh well, you're Latino, you must be fun, not very good at things. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna prove everybody wrong that I'm good, I suppose. And also figure out that I wanted to be an academic and that the uh, academic job market was very much about, okay, how many pubs does this guy have? Like, how many pubs does this candidate have? And I'm like, okay, so the rewards are if connected to you being able to carry through that academic vision. If you have a great study and you don't finish it, it and worse, you don't publish it, then you're not going to have that many opportunities. So I spent that time as a PhD student making sure to publish the work that I was doing at the time uh, that I think made me a more attractive job candidate. And I interviewed at several schools. Um, Ohio State University gave me an offer, uh, UT Austin, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and the uh, University of Hawaii at Manoa. And uh, I was able to get a couple of offers and make them compete and then chose uh, UT, UT Austin at the time. And, and to me, it felt at the time a little bit like, wow, people are flying me over. They want to hear what I got to say. And this is great. So I felt, I, I felt that it was a great experience for me because I was like, of the idea of like bringing it on, like I, I'm gonna show my research and if I get tough questions, I think I'm gonna be able to answer it and I'm gonna be able to enjoy it. Uh, so it, it felt like a, like a thing that I actually wanted, wanted to do and wanted to pursue and uh, it, it felt very rewarding. And, and at the same time, of course, uh, very stressful because you know uh, I was getting job offers, but I had not finished with my dissertation. So, so I was able to like get the job offers and after accepting one, I'm like, okay, back to the lab. I need to finish what I'm doing because in a year from now, I'm studying a position. So it felt great. It was very rewarding. A lot of stress as you would imagine, but uh, my experiences were, were in general uh, positive. It felt that, that my personal life and career were moving forward and, and that after five years in the Ithaca cold and snow, uh, things were uh, moving, moving along. And you mentioned that you had different options at the time. Um, why UT Austin and how was going from Ithaca to UT Austin, different culture, different ways of thinking and seeing communication, different departments? How was your experience at the time? 
the experience of going while UTOS in at the time, I, I think that my the offers that were most attractive to me at the time were Ohio State University and UT Austin. Um, now, I mean, it's not surprising for anybody that has followed the field for the last 20 years, but uh, OSU at the time had a reputation uh, of burning out their assistant professors. So, and, and I would see it like a high turnover at the assistant professor rate at Ohio State University. I, I don't think that that's true any longer, but it's fair to say that that was the reputation of the program for, you know, about 20 years or so. So I'm like, I definitely don't want that. I don't want like, you know, to be put in a assistant professor situation, burn out and then be thrown out uh, a few years after. So. That, that made me very clear that even though the offer was uh, very attractive, I thought it was a little bit of a kiss of death offer. And I, I, I just didn't want it. Um, when I was interviewing at UT Austin, I needed to meet a scholar that was a professor at OSU. That professor was unavailable. And then I figured out that that professor was interviewing at UT Austin to leave Ohio State University. So I'm like, okay, well, that really confirms everything that I saw, everything that I thought is getting confirmed. So uh, uh, Austin looked like the better alternative. Um, the UT Austin program was presented. <laughs> when I went to other professors at Cornell and told them, hey, I got this offer from UT Austin, one professor that I admire a lot look at me and said, oh, you Austin, a lot of people need to retire from there. Uh, I later figure out that what that probably was very, very, very true. So when I arrived to Austin, I was very excited about the pedigree of the department and the quality of my colleagues. At the same time, it seemed like a very traditional program from the 80s. Uh, uh, I felt at the time, I don't know if it is the true right now that um, I was one of the few non-Caucasian professors. Uh, there were certain expectations about where you feel you're either a rhetorician or organizational communication or interpersonal scholar. I was hired as an Orcom scholar, but I am not. So I felt that, and I was an experimentalist in, an, in a department that at the time was really, run by rhetoricians, in my perspective. I don't know if that has changed or not. So I was like, oh, this is kind of not for me. And probably my colleagues thought that I was not for them. So it was a very neat situa situation of like, I just never felt comfortable around the department based on its history and culture and the leadership at the time. I just felt very not, not, not into it somehow. So that uh, that really, really had an effect on me in terms of like trying to publish as much as possible and continue with my productivity. But there was no laboratory at the time. I know that now the Bilo Center has laboratories, but at the time, uh, a few colleagues used like this one room that people would like run experiments there, I suppose. But it was not conditioned for you to run experiments. It was something that was more uh, determined for people to have conversations and record them talking with each other. So the interpersonal scholars would use that room. And the, uh, whenever I would ask for the room, the administrators were, were like, you want the room for what? 
like space is an issue. And so that for an experimentalist is not an ideal situation because I didn't have my equipment in an area, I had to move things around. Uh, there was no uh, subject pool. And if I would go to some of my colleagues, they would question like, why do you run experiments? And isn't it, uh, isn't it wrong to assign extra credit to students? Like there was a whole questioning of the scientific enterprise. I felt that I was somehow representing within that department. Uh, so my time at UT Austin, I remember it as being, uh, I love the music and I love the food. And it was a great experience for me to know more about departmental politics and grow as a scholar, not intellectually, but at the political level. And that uh, uh, made me uh, consider uh, other options. Great. And, and, and how did you experience uh, during the first year of, of uh, you as a faculty, and, but also now, how do you experience teaching in the U.S. as a, as a practice uh, in terms of like, your intellectual career, but also in terms of a different culture, teaching for a different, sometimes for different people, for different students? Yeah, yeah. I think it varies from school to school. I think that... Uh, I, my time in, in Austin, I remember very vividly getting into the idea that students would look at a class and think, well, I'm at UT Austin. It's like the top school in Texas. And there was like this pride, this Texan pride that was very, very strong, very palpable. Um, and the students were in a stepping stone, kind of middle class vibe, which I can definitely relate to, of how would this class further my career? Is this giving me an edge against uh, other students getting a job or something like that? So I felt that there was this pride, utilitarian take uh, from the students uh, in terms of what they wanted. And, and I was coming fresh out of a program where, wow, this is an interesting theory, and this is a great way of measuring things, and isn't this clever? And I think that, I don't think that the students were really, you know, interested in, in, in anything like that. Uh, so that made me change my teaching to become more topical and spend less time on the details about the theories, investigating a particular study or informing a particular study or the methods. And it's more like, oh, here's a study about online dating and this is what they find. So like catering more to this, the technologies that the students are using and this is an interesting question that occur within that context. like deception, uh, the, relating to others, like finding friends or finding romantic partners and the effects of video games and virtual environments, but kind of skipping on the science and giving more of a, of, of, of a translational version of that, which is fine. I mean, that's, that's, I think, the work that we do as scholars, which is translate the complexity uh, of ideas into something that is more uh, educational, didactic in nature. So I, I don't believe that to be a scholar, you need to be complex thinking and not be able to communicate to people. On the contrary, I think that that's a, that's a skill. So that's, uh, that's, that was fine by, by, by me. Uh, I think that the UC Davis students, uh, this is more of an act school and more of a less middle class and lower middle class in which the students are really trying to use education, uh, yes, to get further, but, but they're not coming from the same standards as UT Austin with this pride and, and expectations and, and wealth many times behind them. Uh, so I feel that uh, somehow 
that translates into students being interested in research and what do they do in the laboratories and uh, maybe I want to consider grad school. So I feel that my teaching has uh, found more of a more of a voice or niche here at UC Davis than than in Austin too. And with the caveat that I feel that over the years. I cannot assign the same amount of readings. Like if I was at the beginning of my career assigning an academic paper or two, right now I'm assigning like a book chapter or a news article because I feel that over the years, the students are less attuned into spending time reading as much as previous generations. Maybe I'm showing my age there, but definitely there's been uh, an attempt to streamline my teaching and information delivery so that it is less jargony and less technical and try to find the students' interest by speaking about dynamics, communication dynamics that they may care about. They may not care about affiliation and how people form affinity, but they're definitely, or maybe, interested in a romantic partner and making friends. So... So it's uh, it's the putting uh, putting less of the theoretical methodological part uh, uh, up front and putting the the question and problem first and then using research to like illuminate the question, which I think it's probably probably a good change. I don't think that you know I was uh, an assistant professor coming out of grad school, so I'm gonna like teach you the way that it was taught in graduate seminars. Uh, save that for graduate seminars, and even then, graduate seminars are not. They're not what they used to be years ago. Uh, my students were bitterly complaining that, you know, uh, colleagues assigned four papers uh, a week and then a book and nobody really, is really reading them. They say, like, no one is reading this amount of information because this class gives me four and the other class gives me four and I'm teaching and doing research. So, so I feel that this culture of scholarly seclusion were just like, hmm, I'm going to read and sip coffee. It's just impossible nowadays because the social media, there's uh, text messages, there are so many things pulling our attention in so many different ways. And that attention span and time is at a premium. So I feel that my teaching has adapted to that reality. Very interesting. And, and how do you think that this experience, uh, this experience, is have also been like impacting or in, in which ways this experience is impacting the way you do research in your lab, the routines, how you engage with students in your lab, and how do you ultimately uh, publish or like engage in the in the field? Yeah, the, the funny thing is I don't think that that part has changed that much because when I was an undergrad student, I was the guy with long hair sitting in the back thinking that everything that was said to me was probably wrong or BS. So I was very critical, very dispassionate, and like, yeah, I, I didn't trust it somehow. Uh, and there, uh, and there's also students that are very different from, from that, but like sit in the front and are like super engaged into what the class is. And I feel like I'm trying to teach to those two extremes. I'm trying to get the student that is like really not interested in anything that communication science can say and try to bridge it and get them interested uh, in particular ideas or context. And I'm also trying to, to teach to students that are like, oh yeah, I love the field and I want to learn more about it and get uh, get more experience uh, in, in research and maybe be a researcher or, or, or maybe this would uh, allow me to have a better CV and become more competitive. 
So I still feel that I'm teaching, uh, even though I'm changing the amount of readings and the level of uh, the details that go into my teaching, I'm still trying to cater to the students that are very smart, but haven't found something that connects them intellectually or emotionally to the experience of, uh, of uh, you know, higher education or to the students that are really motivated and want more and want a little bit of a challenge, I'm like, okay, you took my class, then I also collect data, by the way, and many of the studies that we talk about, I don't teach about my own research as much, so I don't do that in my classes, but like, yeah, I do research in this area, and this is my laboratory, and if you're interested, I need help with data collection and running protocols and, you know, compiling databases, so, I'm, I'm trying to cater to those students, the really uh, disconnected and the very connected to see if research is something that sparks uh, any interest in them. And, uh, and in that way, I'm able to staff my own laboratory and get students to help out with data collection in my lab. So let's say that in my lab, uh, I have three grad students. Each grad student has a project and each project has five undergraduate students. So there's a lot of uh, top-down management going on uh, and, and the undergraduate students are the lifeblood for the laboratory in terms of helping us with data collection. So I wouldn't be able to do the kind of research that I uh, do without their aid. And in doing so, they're able to uh, brush uh, the burnish their credentials and get more experience and maybe become co-authors if they go that way, write a honors thesis. So I feel that becomes a fair exchange uh, for uh, experience, knowledge, for something that they can uh, use to uh, further their professional or potentially academic career. So even some of our undergrad students do apply to the UC Davis communication program. And I, I in my lab, have two PhD students that were undergrad students that went into this progression of taking my class, uh, uh, running experiments as an undergrad, and then applying to the program. All right. So on that note, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you like your education and media studies yeah. to change, what what would you wish for? Oh, I'm going to give you such an unpopular answer right now. Uh, <laughs> no, people, please don't hate me. You know, there was this interview by a YouTuber uh, that I followed that uh, interviews musician, and then he was interviewing Sting. Sting, the singer from The Police, and Sting, what would you want for the future right now? And Sting, in a very smug uh, face, said, more of the same. I want more of the same. Because he had like, a great career, and things were like going really great for Sting. So when, when asked about if I had a magic wand to, to apply to the field of communication, I do feel that there's a lot of things to change in terms of the composition of academic departments and the politics of it and the lack of representation for specific scholars or specific ideas. However, this is a very incremental view, so it's a personal opinion. It is not the way it was 20 years ago when I first started, uh, in which uh, uh, it seemed that it was more closed off and less, uh, like, for example, 
publish or perish was the main thing that we were being told as grad students. But now I don't want any of my grad students to perish. You know, I if they are stressed, we talk about mental health and we talk about support systems or maybe take it a little bit easy now. So instead of like driving, driving, driving all the way, you become more attuned to the fact that students have other needs and, and, and a life outside of academia. And I feel that that change towards increased representation of ideas, increased representation of uh, scholars of different backgrounds in comparison to what it was 20 years ago, and an increased uh, concern for um, the well-being of uh, researchers has increased. And don't get me wrong, there's much to change there, but in this incremental view that I uh, have is not as bad as what it was. So I think that we are on the right path with certain things. Um, I also was very concerned that the field of communication, media studies uh, needed a change because we were not producing our own theories and we were importing from sociology and lifting from psychology and do, doing all of this uh, uh, stealing work from other fields. But in the past 20 years and even before that, the communication field has been very uh, attuned to generating its own theories. You, you know them in your own uh, subfield as much as I know them in mine. So I think that we're able to uh, change that uh, in, in many ways. It's still there, but, uh, but the ability to produce our own content and our own ideas that are a communication-based approach to problems that is different from sociology and different from psychology, et cetera, is very much uh, uh, an improvement that, that this magic wand would, if I would wave it, would uh, potentially, potentially uh, change there. So I, I feel that those uh, changes in particular make me more positive about uh, uh, changes that have happened in the field of communication that if I should wave my magic wand would accelerate where we are. Uh, finally, I would say that the field is not before uh, I feel I feel it was derivative in terms of not uh, being in the cutting edge of uh, research, but now I do feel that many of our colleagues are embracing cutting edge uh, questions, like for example the effects of AI in society. That's something that we've been hearing at ICA five years ago, like even before ChatGPT and DALI2 and the interface that we're talking about, scholars were interested in how uh, AIs and recommendation systems would persuade or change people. And I was hearing that uh, those ideas uh, before they actually came to the forefront of where society is right now. Many scholars are embracing cutting edge computational methods as well as a way of uh, uh, complementing our toolbox. So not only experiments or surveys or content analysis, but aggregating large uh, uh, mass of uh, data to uh, examine and reach to conclusions. So I feel that not only method not only theoretically, we are being able to uh, create uh, our own theories and way of looking at uh, social science, but also to stay at the, at the forefront of the implementation of cutting edge methods as well. So like Sting said, more of the same, just faster. <laughs> All right, that's what a fascinating ending for our conversation. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jorge, for this truly wonderful conversation. Thank you to our audience for staying with us uh, through the end. And uh, I invite everybody to join us uh, for the next, next episode of El Café Latinx. So thank you uh, very much, Jorge.
Thank you, Facundo. Say hi to Pablo and thanks so much for uh, giving the forum to the research that we do here at UC Davis. Thank you so much. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.